You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is... <coughs> so welcome, everybody. This is I Love You, Keep Going. It is May 12, 2022 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. We've been talking a lot about mentalizing uh, in the last months, and uh, we talked about beginning mentalizing using uh, Vipassana as the primary means of focusing on that and what to develop. But because uh, uh, at Metagroup we teach Metta Vipassana, I thought that it would be useful to talk about the integration of Metta and Vipassana and how uh, in the beginning of the, the practice they support each other. Uh, and also how uh, you can use metta as a way of further developing your capacity to mentalize. Some uh, uh, metta is practiced as what we call a wet metta, where the purpose of the metta is to generate a positive feeling state in the body. And that's typically done by the repetition of a phrase that uh, as part of the repetition of the phrase, there's a positive emotional response to it. And then there's a, a dry version of metta practice, which is more oriented around uh, the development of uh, concentration and uh, the development of sensory clarity around uh, mind states or views. The reason that we like to teach the dry version of metta or loving kindness practice uh, <coughs> at Metagroup is because it supports the development of sensory clarity around mind states. Um, and that supports the development of uh, secure functioning attachment. And a lot of the work that we do here is focused on uh, exploring attachment conditioning and uh, uh, understanding how that uh, conditioning affected us and what our attachment outcome is and then how you can use uh, meditation practices and education to shift from uh, insecure, disorganized attachment to se earn security. And one of the things that needs to happen there is a development of uh, the capacity to recognize mind states and then have some agency in which mind state you allow uh, to engage at any given moment. One of the things that happens uh, if you aren't able to track mind states or recognize them is that you experience the way that you create conceptual reality as the way that it actually is. Whereas if you can begin to track mind states and begin to recognize the pattern of distortion that they cause in creating conceptual reality, you can begin to recognize when the mind is uh, equanimous and when it isn't. Uh, and then you have also agency to generate a mind state that's beneficial rather than afflictive and replace afflictive mind states or views with uh, beneficial mind states or views. Is that all making sense so far? Christian. This might seem like kind of a weird question, but do you think of attachment security as a particular mind state? Well, what I want you to be able to recognize is 
when the attachment system is activated and the view that that creates so that you can see the distortion in the reality that you create. So remember that when the attachment system activates, there's immediate pressure on you to withdraw toward a pro physical proximity to somebody who's safe and regulating. So you could be in a situation where your attachment system activates because you're perceiving a threat and that if you don't recognize the uh, activation of the attachment system, the subsequent deactivation of the exploration system, you may not recognize that the, the experience you're having is not actually dangerous and uh, needing to be withdrawn from, but needs regulation instead. That making sense. So uh, the way that we create the experience of what's happening is we take in the data through our six sense gates. So the typical five touch, uh, sight, sound, or sight, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and then mind. When you explore mind in uh, the activity of mind in Vipassana meditation, what you see is that you don't do a neutral survey of everything that's in front of you and then create reality from that. You pick and choose things that have meaning to you and you, you essentially cherry pick the environment for things that have meaning to you. Uh, and then you create a conceptual reality based on that. Between ultimate reality, the pure sensing and the thing that you make that into is where the views go. So if you create, if if uh, when the object that you've sensed is compared to the perceptual database, right? So you have the capacity to sense when it has contact with an object that can be sensed, consciousness of the sensing experience arises, which is then uh, uh, evaluated for processing urgency. Does it need immediate attention? Does it not matter whether you get to it? Uh, is it pleasant and do you have time to experience that? And then it's compared to the perceptual database. And if there's an entry in the database of previously defined uh, experience that's close enough to the experience that you're having in the moment, the meaning of that attaches to it and it goes from raw sensing data into the creation of conceptual reality. If you have in the database uh, an activation around uh, early attachment conditioning, which attaches to the present moment, and you're not aware of that, uh, and you're not able to track that, then you create the present moment, which has the same level of threat in it that the early conditioning experience had in it. And that's what we want to be able to evaluate in real time, to be able to mentalize fast enough to know, oh, I'm reacting to this because it is reminiscent of early attachment conditioning is the experience I'm having now. Uh, at the same uh, danger level as the experience that I'm making it out of, or is it different from that? So that when you form your intention to take the action in the moment, it's actually based on the conditions of the present moment and not the meaning that you've assigned to it through your conditioning. So far, so good. In order to track all of that, you have to be able to mentalize fast enough to track all of those things as they're happening. And that's why we want to begin to develop that. And you also have to recognize those views. Um, I'm frightened. And so there's a fearful view that uh, enters in. 
Can you recognize that the mind is now in a state of uh, cheerfulness? And then do you know how to counteract that by generating a beneficial mind state to push out the fearful mind state and replace it with a beneficial mind state? And can you do it fast enough that it, you don't uh, form the intention and take the action that then creates a karmic thread that's based on a conditioned response uh, that pulls you out of the present moment into uh, uh, an historical response rather than actually responding to the conditions of the present moment. Making sense so far? I know that it's complicated. And one of the reasons why uh, using Vipassana is so good at this is that you can break it up into these little little parts and examine the parts. And then once you're familiar with the parts, you can begin to assemble the the whole process until you have enough sensory clarity and enough speed in your mentalizing that you can actually follow the whole thing as it unfolds moment by moment, moment by moment. <clears throat> One of the um, things about secure uh, functioning people is that they tend to have the capacity to do this without having to be instructed to do it because they learned how to do it when they were children through the interaction with their caregiver. And if you don't have a secure functioning that developed in the original dyadic relationship with your caregiver, then it's a deficit that you can actually train now and develop. It doesn't mean that there's a fault or a defect in, in, in the way that you operate. It means that you haven't uh, done the training that would allow you to do it. And so you undertake to do that training now uh, is the thing. So how does a, a child learn to mentalize? One uh, um, language is coming on for a child. Uh, and uh, you may have heard parents say, use your words. I can't figure out what's going on with you. What's going on with you? Tell me what's going on with you. And all of those kinds of queries about the internal state of the, the child requires the child to reflect on their internal state and then also to recognize the mind state that they're in so that they can effectively communicate that uh, to the caregiver. And then the caregiver can teach them how to regulate those experiences. I can see you're sad. What are we going to do about that sadness? Well, let's here, come over here and let me give you a hug and I'll hold on to you. And then you can tell me when you're not sad anymore. So then the child has to track how long the sadness lasts. And then they inform the uh, uh, caregiver that they're not sad anymore. And then the, the caregiver puts them down and says, okay, now you can go play, which is the switching from the attachment system, activating uh, and being comforted into the active exploration system where they're then supported and encouraged to return to playing. And so that uh, dynamic happening between a caregiver and a child over a period of time is what instructs the child uh, to have the capacity to track mind states and also uh, hopefully uh, useful skills in how to regulate uh, mind states. Um, is that making sense? So you, in a secure household where there is attention to the child's uh, inner life and an inquiry 
an ongoing daily inquiry into what's happening for the child and then uh, an uh, invitation uh, and a safe environment for the child actually to express the experience of their inner life to the caregiver and then the caregiver uh, reflecting back to them the, the the sense of safety and hopefully delight in the experience of the child and then also helping the child uh, to uh, adapt to that constant uh, flow of change is what instructs that. And then, of course, if you don't have that uh, a level of care, or uh, usually because your caregivers don't actually have the capacity to do that, so they can't instruct you in it, then we grow uh, up without those uh, skills uh, developed. Doesn't mean you can't develop them, it just means that you didn't develop them in those windows of opportunity that uh, children had and that you then begin the process of uh, developing them now. We create in ourselves a working model of ourselves and mainly that working model is based on the reflection of uh, the caregiver's experience of us. So we present ourselves authentically our caregivers respond to that and then they reflect that back to us and that's how we learn who we are so if the caregiver is constantly reflecting back interest and constantly reflecting delight back then you develop a sense of yourself as an interesting person who's delightful to be around because that's who that's what's reflected back to you if you're constantly supported and encouraged to be at the edge of what your developmental capacities are, then you develop a sense of competency and also reaching uh, for uh, expanding your exploration. And if you don't have that, you develop uh, a, a sense of yourself and of your capacity that is uh, uh, matches the reflection uh, that your caregivers reflected back to you so that if your your caregiver is overwhelmed by the expressions then you make and they reflect that back you might develop a sense of being a person who's too much or that the expressions of your emotions are overwhelming for other people it doesn't mean that that's true it means that that's what you saw in the reflection of your your caregiver and that your sense of self is is based on those reflections. So you know, when you listen to that inner voice and you examine the working model of yourself, what you're really going to see is the uh, a reflection of the caregiver's experience of taking care of you, not necessarily what your uh, strengths and weaknesses are. Is that making sense, Christian? I, I kind of have a sense that these qualities that are reflected, and I'm thinking in terms of like an IPF session, that these are mind states, like the delight, and that these are things that we can then draw on. And, and I'm thinking of like in an IPF session, uh, we'll get to some point, and I forget the exact wording, but it'll be like, really focus on that, you know, really focus on that and like kind of get into it more and really try and remember that and take that out into whatever and maybe it'll be some sense of delight or something like that um and to me that's asking me to focus on a mind state and and recognize that 
Um, would you would you agree with that? Like, do I think, the I think I might characterize it a little different. What you're talking about is emotional marking. One of the things about human memory is that it requires a high level of emotional intensity to be remembered. And so when you're developing a mind state and you're developing a feeling in the ideal parent figure meditation that's positive, we, the facilitator will often ask you to uh, make a deep impression of that or to really take that in. And what they're attempting you to do is to focus on the feeling state enough that it becomes intense enough that you then make a memory out of the experience of the meditation and because what we're really trying to do in the ideal parent figure protocol is layer in intentionally positive experiences around difficult experiences in childhood so that when you go to create the experience of conceptual reality you have alternatives to the difficult emotions the difficult experiences which often had uh, intense emotion uh, associated with them. So one of the reasons we tend to remember negative experience is uh, because it's often accompanied by strong emotion. And if we don't have positive experiences that are particularly marked, then we don't tend to remember them. It doesn't mean that there aren't often positive experiences. It's because they weren't uh, emotionally <coughs> <clears throat> marked they don't make it through the short term a long term memory process um, one of the things about uh, the uh, insecure and disorganized attachments uh, is that the working model of self does tend to be uh, lopsided on the negative experience side and so one of the things that we need to do uh, is to balance that out by uh, creating intentional positivity uh, and associating it with the working model. And this is really where the, the, all of the heart practices come in, but in particular, the, the metta practice or the karuna practice or the mudita practice or the upekka practice associated with a sense of self. So you evoke the sense of self and then you evoke the mind state of uh, loving kindness or any of the intentional positivity mind states so that when it crosses the short-term long-term memory barrier the working model of self uh, has these uh, associations of positivity so that the next time the sense of self is activated uh, because we know ourselves through this unique collection of mind states that are associated with it there's an abundance of positive mind states associated with the sense of self one of the causes or the primary effect of uh, so much negative um, uh, negativity or negative states associated with the sense of self is that when the sense of self arises it arises and activates these negative states which are associated with the sense of self and we be gradually become aversive to the negative experience that arises when self activity is activated and so the stronger the aversion gets to the negative states that are associated with the sense of self, uh, the, the, the greater the, the reluctance is to have that happen, or the, uh, or the, the common term is just self-hatred. So the antidote to that is to diminish the negative side, but the negative side and the positive side are separate systems. 
you can diminish the negative side quite a bit and it won't create positive states in the replacement without intentionally generating the positive states and the intentionally generating the association of positive states to self. That all making sense so far. So when we do the dry metta practice, which is a concentration practice uh, using an ob a mind state or view as the object, the first part of the practice is recognizing what a mind state is, <coughs> discerning one mind state from another, and developing agency to intentionally cause a positive mind state to arise and then being able to sustain awareness of that positive mind state. These are mainly activities that are suitable to Vipassana meditation, not to meditation per se. Once you have the agency to do all of that, right? Recognize the mind state that's there, intentionally generate the mind state that you want, displace all other mind states except the one that you want to hold as an object and focus on it. You need to be in this investigative mode of what is a mind state? How do I cause a mind state to arise? Uh, how do I sustain a mind state? How do I recognize the effect of one mind state on the, con the creation of conceptual reality and distinguish that from another mind state and the effect that that has on conceptual reality? So when I'm simply looking at conceptual reality, I can tell which mind state is present or absent. Not making sense. So when you're when you have a high level of mastery in this, uh, in each moment you can track the appearance of conceptual reality, and just from the appearance of it, understand whether there's a mind state present and which one it is. Is that making sense? One of the things that we do is look in the beginning, look for people that the mind state itself is built into, into the creation of them. Not only do we have a working model of ourselves that we activate, that activates uh, the different associated mind states in a particular pattern that creates this experience of ourselves, but we have working models of other people that have mind states associated with them so that when we think of somebody else, the way that we know them is the working model activates and creates the experiences in our senses uh, that map onto the way that we remember them, the way that we understand who they are, which is actually a collection of mind states. So in the beginning, when you're doing the investigation and trying to discover uh, what a mind state is and tell one from the different one from another, we can use our understanding of attributes about somebody else uh, and think of them intentionally and know that in the process of thinking of them, we're activating a set of mind states. And then we can explore in the activation of the other person, which mind states are available. So in the beginning, what we work with are easy people. And what we mean by easy people is that the mind state of loving kindness is highly associated with that person and not many other mind states are. So that when you think of that person, the dominant experience of them 
is the mind state that you're looking for so that you can explore what that mind state is and how it affects the experience of uh, the reality that you create. Is that all making sense? If I rem uh, this is this fundamental understanding that we, we don't create a map of what's actually happening. We create a picture of what, what is happening means to us in the moment. We don't uh, do, as I said earlier, a complete um, scan of everything, a neutral scan of everything, and then create a neutral image of what's happening. Everything is compared to our database and the meaning that's in the database is what's assigned to everything that we experience. And from that collection of mind moments, that those snapshots that we punch out of the environment, we create this this uh, actual, uh, our preference of the interpretation of what's happening. And because our conditioning is different from everybody else's conditioning, the basic understanding there is that the version of conceptual reality that I'm creating is unique to me, and everyone else is creating their own unique understanding of what's happening. And so that early basic level of mentalizing that we talk about is recognizing that you have uh, a conception of what's happening and everybody else has a conception of what's happening. Everybody's conception is different. So we don't demand that people comply with our understanding what's happening. We become curious about how their understanding of what's happening reflects their conditioning so that we can begin to know them intimately because the way that they make the world is not an uh, assault on the way that you make the world, but a reveal of what their conditioning is. And so if you can be open and curious about it, you can really know a lot about somebody based on how they create the experience of the present moment. Um, so, whoops, this isn't the right one. So then as you get, begin to know people, of course, you can begin to recognize whether there's a view or a mind state that's distorting their perception of things. So you notice that people are responding different than what is, differently than what is ordinarily their response to something. And then you recognize, oh, he's or she's angry. She's not seeing things clearly. So we have that recognition. So uh, that beginning piece, recognizing that you have a mind state, recognizing that uh, or view and other people have that. And then also the next part, which is uh, tracking whether or not your current state of mind is equanimous and pretty accurate or whether it's distorted by the presence of a mind state. Of course, beneficial mind states create distortion in the way that you create conceptual reality, but we tend to think of that as a beneficial distortion, whereas anger or uh, fear or afflictive guilt, something like that, would create a, 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 a harmful uh, distortion in uh, conceptual reality. Is that all making sense so far? Um, so the next part here, and this is really what we're using metaphor, 
is uh, awareness that you have an influence on uh, another state and vice versa. So mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, uh, and uh, the tracking of uh, uh, mindfulness of inside and outside is how it's described in the Satipatthana Sutta. But noticing that you uh, uh, make a form an intention and take an action and then that's received by somebody else and then they interpret it and they form an intention and take an action and then you receive that and then you react to it and they react to it and that you can influence those reactions by the views or the mind states that you hold if somebody uh, reacts to the presentation of your mind state uh, with the su suggestion that you're wrong about the view, you can react in a defensive way, or you can re react in an open and curious way, depending on how you hold the experience of that. And so there's an effect that you can have, an influence. But if you react angrily, it, it's a very different response than if you uh, respond in a, a loving and kind way. Is that making sense? And if you can track your, the, the, the rapid change of your own mind states, flipping from a kind mind state to an angry mind state, uh, you can actually uh, uh, intervene on your own behalf and be more effective in the way that you relate to somebody. And if you take in the response and notice that it creates a strong uh, selfing experience and then negative mind states flow from that and then uh, have enough clarity and speed to then uh, push out the mindset and replace it before you react, you can totally change the dynamic of a, a conversation about something that's happening. One of the things about adult relationships is that we often uh, come into conflict with other people and that those conflicts need to be negotiated in insecure intimate relationships if you can hold the space open and and negotiate uh, in an authentic way and and with the understanding that both parties need to come into a place where they're satisfied with the outcome you can get through intense emotional experiences and actually support and reinforce the the, the bonds of the relationship and if you can't do that often uh, the reactivity that comes uh, from uh, identifying with the afflictive mind states can uh, damage the relationship, the bonds of the relationship. Um, <clears throat> so becoming aware of one's mind state in such a way that it has a regulatory effect on that state. And here again is where we're using metta to recognize the mindset that we're holding and then have the agency to cause an alternative mind state that's beneficial to arise and then replacing the afflictive mind state with the beneficial mind state. Um, is that all making sense so far in terms of that? So, uh, once you uh, explore uh, in the early part of doing this practice in the way that I'm describing, using the Vipassana techniques of what is the mindset, what is the mindset I'm going for, how do I hold the mindset I'm going for, how do I sustain it, 
How do I sustain awareness of it? Once you develop the skill to do that, then you can uh, completely set down the Vipassana side and go fully into the, the Metta side where you're just abiding in the mind state. Um, uh, sometimes uh, insights arise when you're doing that about uh, the experience of self or the experience of others or the experience of conceptual reality. And in the integrated Metta Vipassana way of practicing, you simply uh, temporarily set down the Metta side and go explore it in the Vipassana side. And when you're satisfied with that, come back into the Metta side. So there's a movement back and forth in this. We develop concentration in the Metta side, which is easily slid over into the Vipassana side. So in Vipassana meditation, uh, and we did some of that last week, you're exploring the, the activations uh, uh, and uh, content. But when you want, when, you, when an insight arises in the Vipassana side, you do intentionally set down the technique that you're doing and contemplate the insight that has arisen. Once you're satisfied with the contemplation piece, you can either return to the metta side or continue with the vipassana side. Always when you're exploring insights, there's the seeing clearly what's happening and then the contemplation of that uh, through thinking. Now we want to be able to make meaning out of that, which is one of the things that is part of this early metacognitive skills, meaning making. So. We have the experience of it and then to understand the experience, we do contemplation on it. Once we've made meaning out of it, we return to either one of the techniques, the Vipassana technique or the Metta technique. Is that making sense? Uh, George, can you like give it like a small example of what that would look like or sound like in your head, like the contemplation part? Um, so your in, in MetaMind and you're trying to hold MetaMind, but you notice that you keep losing MetaMind and uh, an angry mind state arises in its place. So then you might step out of the Meta side because you can't really hold the MetaMind and explore the mind state of anger in the Vipassana side. So you're looking at the auditory aspects of that, the visual aspects of that, and then the emotion of anger in the body. You recognize the voice as the voice of your mother's, let's say, you see the imagery associated with it, which is a childhood memory, you might explore the content of that, understand the, the anger piece, um, and then um, contemplate that. So I'm having this reaction anger, which is rooted in these experiences that I had as a child. Why would uh, holding metamind uh, uh, result in an, uh, an angry response instead mm. of a, uh, uh, a metamind response. Remember that uh, the antidote to anger is loving kindness. And so it's quite ordinary for uh, in the beginning when you're attempting to evoke metamind that actually the mind uh, re re reverts into the angry piece. Mm -hmm. um, then you might come back into the Vipassana side, 
to see uh, that the self-generated experience of anger is actually masking something that's underneath it. And when you come into the experience underneath it, what you touch into is a sense of sadness. And then you realize that the sadness is actually ex the uh, experience of uh, the child in the that environment. Uh, and then you might understand that actually holding your self experience with loving kindness uh, evokes memories of what you didn't have when you were a child, which is the origin of the sadness. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. Then you would contemplate that, uh, that I'm now going to hold uh, the, the sense of the child self that didn't have that and uh, intentionally embed the positivity of the metta in association with that child and then come back into the metta side and radiate the, the loving kindness to yourself so that you can begin to associate the, the loving kindness practice. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, one of the things uh, when we went to Burma to to or Myanmar to le learn this, um, we would go there. The retreats were fifteen days, and um, you would notice in in the 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 uh, the population of the retreat that the people who were experienced at doing this would zoom into these uh, uh, states of uh, uh, of metta, which were very light and ebullient, and all of the people that were new to the practice would uh, descend <laughs> into frustration <laughs> for the first few days. And the stomping around and the slamming of the doors and the thumping <laughs> get louder and louder. And then one by one, you'd see them finally get it. And then bam, they, they'd have these intense bliss responses to being able to do the practice. So I know that as I describe this, that there's a lot of pieces to it and, and they need to be synchronized and pretty uh, fluid in order for these things to happen. So I commented uh, uh, on that to the Sayadaw and he laughed and he said, we call that a meta bomb. That, uh, you know, you're stomping around, you're mostly in anger, then all of a sudden a meta bomb blows you up and you're in these, these bliss states. Um, uh, so uh, one way to do this, of course, is to do it as a, as a regular daily practice until you really get, it, really get it. And another way to do it is to go on retreat where you can do extended periods of practice so that you can actually stack up all of these small steps until it's a fluid process. Uh, and then uh, you can uh, um, focus mainly on the concentration aspect of this, which is to cause the mind state loving kindness to rise, to place and sustain awareness of it. As you do that, the mind engages it and everything else falls into the background except the awareness of the mind state. And in reaction to that concentration on the mind state, the body fills with a pleasantness or a bliss. That bliss energy can be very subtle, but it can also be very intense. And then the mind settles into a one-pointedness where you're just sustaining awareness of the mind state uh, in concentration and bliss. 
and we would call that the first metta jhana or the first high concentration state with uh, loving kindness, the mindset of loving kindness as the object. So any questions about that before we uh, begin to do a little practice with it? Okay. Let's do some practice then. Good. So, comments or questions about that practice? So, um, what's coming up uh, at the end of June is and July is a, a level one, and then uh, of this fall, I think we're starting a level two. Uh, we have the class, um, sorry, the retreat in October. Then uh, in November, we're doing a, a um, level one and a level two for European, uh, Central European time. So if any of you are real night owls, <laughs> want to accompany me at one o'clock in the morning for those, uh, those uh uh, days that they, uh, they'll be up on the, the website soon. Um, what else is happening? I think that's about it. Uh, most of that stuff is on the website. The retreat is actually filling up. So uh, if you're interested in the retreat, I would sign up sooner than later because it, it probably won't. Uh, it will probably sell out. Um, I offer the teaching uh, freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation to help support me in the work that Metagroup is doing. There's links for donation uh, on the website. Thank you for coming, and we'll see you soon. Bye now.